Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 241. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about how to resolve internecine conflicts. Chapter 8 begins with a bit of a time jump, 20 years during which Shlomo built and expanded his kingdom and its borders. In the north, Shlomo built and fortified cities along his border with Hiram, the king of Tyre, as well as along the frontier with the Arameans. Shlomo also pressed gangs, quote, all the people left of the Hittite and the Amorite and the Prezite and the Hevite and the Jebusite who were not of Israel, of their sons who were left after them in the land whom the Israelites had not wholly destroyed. Solomon subjected them to forced labor till this day. The chronicler is quick to tell us that the Jews, who were also pressed into the king's service, were not slaves. Got that? Not, not, not slaves. The chronicler also tells us that Shlomo marries the daughter of Pharaoh, but he won't house her in his palace because of its proximity or adjacency to the temple. And quote, I will not have a woman dwelling in the house of David, king of Israel, for it is holy as the Ark of Adonai came there. Yikes. In Jerusalem, the temple routines are set and running, quote, according to the command of Moses for Sabbaths and for new moons and for the festivals three times a year, on the festival of flatbread and on the festival of weeks and on the festival of huts. And according to the practices of David, his father, he set up orders of the priests over their service and the Levites and their watches to praise and to minister over against the priests for what was due every day and the gatekeepers in their orders for every single gate. Thus was the command of David, man of God. The chapter concludes with accounts of Shlomo's naval escapades, quote, to Etzion Geber and to Elot and on the seacoast in the land of Edom. And Huram sent to him in charge of his servant ships and servants adept in the sea, and Shlomo's servants came to Ophir and took from there 450 talents of gold and brought it to King Solomon. Chapter 9 recounts the story of the Queen of Sheba's visit to, quote, try Solomon with riddles in Jerusalem. Shlomo is not only wise, but as the chronicler relishes in telling us, lives a lavish lifestyle. For example, quote, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in a single year was 160 talents of gold, besides what he had from the traders and the merchants and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land were bringing, gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 shields of beaten gold, 600 measures of gold he put on each shield, and 300 bucklers of beaten gold. 300 measures of gold he put on each buckler, and the king put them in the house of the Lebanon forest. And then there's Shlomo's throne, his horses, and the expansive borders, and diplomatic relations with all the important kings, all of which concludes with the chronicler's observation, quote, the rest of the acts of Solomon, early and late, are they not written in the words of Nathan the prophet, and in the prophecy of Achiah the Shilonit, and in the visions of Yedo the seer concerning Yeravam son of Nevat? And just like that, we're done with Shlomo, who, quote, lay with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, his father, and Rehavam was king in his stead. Chapter 10 marks a shift with the chronicler moving away from incessant simping for the monarchy to a more measured, perhaps jaundiced approach. 
didn't take too long for kings of Israel not to walk in the way of God and act unwisely. Case in point, Shlomo's son Rechavam. Where the chronicler overlooked, omitted, and obscured all the unpleasant things about David and Shlomo, no punches are pulled here about their successor. However, there is a hint of critique of Shlomo in describing the whereabouts of Yeravam, the son of Nevat, who suddenly appears in Shechem at Rechavam's coronation to challenge the new king. The chronicler tells us that, quote, he, that is Yeravam, was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Why? What did he do to run so afoul of the wise and wealthy king? We only get a sense two verses later when Yeravam speaks, quote, Your father made our yoke heavy, and now lighten the hard labor of your father and his heavy yoke that he put on us, that we may serve you. As anyone who has paid taxes in their life, sales, federal or otherwise, this request resonates. Rechavam asks for three days to think about it, which is already a bad sign. What's to think about? For conservatives, it's a no-brainer. But Rechavam needs a huddle, and his father's old head advisors tell him, quote, If you will be good to this people and show favor to them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants always. Does this mean that Rechavam should reduce taxes? Well, maybe. What it sounds more like is, you know, empathy. Tell the people that you know it's hard, that times are tough, and then you're with them. You know, thoughts and prayers. Well, Rechavam decides to zig where he should have zagged, and listening to the counsel of his own mates, the, quote, young men with whom he had grown up, he has a response ready. Quote, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins, and now my father burdened you with the heavy yoke, and I will add to your yoke. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. How do you think that went over? The people draw bars. Quote, we have no share in David, nor an estate in the son of Jesse. To your tents, each man of Israel, see to your house, O David. And when the king dispatches Adoram, the overseer, to oversee whatever the king wanted him to oversee, the people lynch him. This is Rechavim's cue to get out of Shechem and flee to Jerusalem, and with that, the revolt is on. In this corner, supported by the houses of Judah and Benjamin, weighing in with 180,000 picked warriors, the son of Shlomo, Rechavim. The chronicler tells us that Shmaya, a man of God, tells Rechavam that God does not want this bloodshed, that, quote, go back each man to his house, for from me this thing has come about. So Rechavam fortifies and strengthens the new southern kingdom of Judah, while Yeravam, the son of Nevat, establishes the new northern kingdom of Israel. This leaves the Kohanim and Levites of the north in a bit of a pickle, because being up north, would deny them access to their workplace, the temple. And besides, as the chronicler tells us, quote, Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to Adonai, and he set up for himself priests for the high places and for the satyrs and the calves that he had made. In other words, Yeravam establishes his own temple and worship and enlists a new cohort of priests to work there. 
In addition to the influx of northern Kohanim and Levites southwards, there was an additional rush of refugees who, quote, came to Jerusalem from all the tribes of Israel, those who devoted their heart to seek Adonai, God of Israel, to sacrifice to Adonai, God of their fathers. This tumultuous time took about three years to calm down and settle into a new normal, while the king took wives, 18 in all, and an additional 60 concubines, and sired many children, 28 sons and 60 daughters, whom he sent to the fortified towns to establish a royal presence. Of this brood, Rehavam picks his heir, Aviyah, the son of Maacha, Avshalom's daughter, and his favorite wife. If you think about it, the Tanakh is rife with civil wars, or as the Hebrew would render it more evocatively, Melchemet Achim, a war of brothers. Genesis begins with Cain killing Hevel. Ishmael is banished after something unmentioned goes down between him and his brother Yitzchak. And in each successive generation, brothers are in conflict. Esav and Yaakov struggle even in the womb culminating in the escape of the latter from the murderous wrath of the former into what would become a decades-long exile. Yaakov's sons throw their brother Yosef down a well, and later, as viceroy of Egypt, Yosef pays them back with interest. What is the justification for each conflict? What is the causus belli, the cause for war? Without exception, it's jealousy. God favors Hevel's sacrifice, Yitzchak, is the child of Avraham's wife, not lowly handmaiden. Genesis tells us that Yitzchak and Rivka clearly played favorites, and the same would be replicated in the next generation by Yaakov, their child, when he doled out gifts and attention only to one of his sons. And depending on who is the aggrieved party, judgment is either handed down on the combatant or withheld. Cain is condemned for his jealousy, so is Ishmael, but Yaakov, who clearly covets his father's attention and blessing, he is celebrated for his deception. As for the war between the sons of Israel, the verdict is mixed. Yosef is an insufferable narcissist, or just a typical adolescent, who definitely deserved to be knocked down a peg or three, but did that warrant being pitched down into a well and sold into slavery? I think you're overreacting a little bit. Such conflicts are terrible. You know, when two people who should be bonded, sharing the same parents and upbringing, they seek to destroy each other. It, it destroys families. It's almost a profound betrayal of the natural order of things. One which the book of Genesis, which is all about families and family drama, seems to understand that in these situations, these jealousy-fueled conflicts are inevitable between siblings. And like I said before, depending on whom Genesis likes, the conflict will either be rueful or remarkable. Like objects falling to earth, brothers will fight. There is one instance, however, where Genesis wishes it were different and gives us a glimpse of that reality, where Avraham and his entourage find themselves in conflict with his nephew Lot's entourage over grazing land and space in Genesis chapter 13. The text tells us, quote, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's flocks. The Canaanite and Perizzite were dwelling in the land, and Abram said to Lot, Pray, let there be no contention between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine, for we are kinsmen. Is not all the land before you? Pray, let us part company. If you take the left hand, I shall go right, and if you take the right hand, I shall go left. 
the solution here is clear, part ways, but part as kin. Indeed, when Yaakov defrauds his brother Esav twice over, the solution offered by his mother is flight. Rivka packs Yaakov off to her family in Haran, where Yaakov remains for decades. And when the brothers reunite on the banks of the Yabok River, they embrace, exchange gifts, and go their separate ways. Indeed, this seems to be the prescription here as well in 2 Chronicles, which follows 1 Kings rather closely. But it almost didn't happen. Yeravam, the son of Nevat, comes correct. He is not wrong in decrying the tax burden imposed by Shlomo over the people. He is wise to counsel that Rechavam would win a claim and ardor if he was to reverse his father's policy even a little. By the way, there's no mention here of the B-plot during the reign of Shlomo, where Achiah of Shiloh finds Yeravam, who, as the text tells us, there was a Gibor Chayil, an able fellow, in the employ of Shlomo. And after ripping a new robe into 12 pieces, Achiah gives Yeravam 10 of them because, quote, For thus said Adonai, the God of Israel, I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and I will give you 10 tribes. Achiah tells Yeravam that this will happen because, quote, For they have forsaken me, they have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Phoenicians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways or done what is pleasing to me or kept my laws and rules as his father David did. Yeravam is not the villain here, and yet he must flee Shlomo's men to Egypt, where he remains under King Shishak's protection until Shlomo dies. And he's not the villain in Shechem when he returns to confront Rechavam. But the chronicler is a monarchist. He loves David. He loves Shlomo. How can he withhold from Shlomo's son and chosen heir? And as I said earlier, the tone here shifts. Rechavam listens to his mates, not the old heads, and comes up with a salty and vulgar reply to Yeravam's request. If you thought my father was bad, I will be worse, and you will feel my wrath. And the people respond accordingly. We have no share in David, nor an estate in the son of Jesse, etc., etc. Quite the prologue for what will probably be the bloodiest of wars between kin. Cue the montage of the men hitting the armory to gird their loins and ready for the war of brothers. Except Shmaya, the man of God, puts a stop to all of it. Quote, go back each man to his house, for from me this thing has come about. Do what Avraham and Lot did. Part ways, like Yaakov and Esav, keep the peace, which they do for a while. Now, I wonder which other war of brothers, which other internecine conflict might be resolved in this manner. You know, parting as kin and keeping the peace. Anyone? Anyone? If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning for this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 242, when we continue in 2 Chronicles with chapters 12 through 15.